The Gist is an independent podcast. You know that. You value that. That's why you listen. And we are going to remain independent no matter what. But independence is worth it, but also comes at a cost. So we have a subscription service. Go to subscribe.mikepesca.com to get The Gist ad-free or to get bonus episodes of interviews of The Gist and a trivia night. There's also a level where you can commission a spiel as if you were a doge in Italy or a raj or anything that ends in a just sound in one of the nations of the world where you commission humble artists to do your bidding. It's all available at subscribe.mikepesca.com. Consider it planting a flag for the very spirit of independence. It's Tuesday, May 30th, 2023 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. A non-debt ceiling coverage. That's what you get out of the gist. That's the gist difference. The gist is a news show, but it's not. This is a bit of our unstated motto. It's not an exceedingly boring news show, which means you probably thought it meant, oh yeah, you don't cover the news in an exceedingly boring way. That is true. But I also don't cover the exceedingly boring news. Now, if something is very important, I will try to find a way to make it interesting. I'll sprinkle my magic, less uninteresting dust on it. I could get those really boring stories, like if Sweden is blocked from Turkey and joining NATO, I could take that from a a D plus to a B minus minus in interestingness. It's a bit of a gift. I acknowledge that. And I was reading about, I was monitoring all the debt ceiling news. So if something interesting happened, I'd be the first to tell you. But if I was the third, fourth, fifth, or eighth, I feel that I wasn't doing my job. It would hurt the bond that I have established with you. I, as the guy who gives you the news that you need to know, but also that you want to know. I was also making an editorial decision saying every other newspaper putting it on their front page, I guess they had to. But just like when the queen died after day two of that, I was kind of happy to miss. I'm glad the debt ceiling thing looks like it's going to be solved, and I'll certainly be covering whatever congressional votes. That's interesting. But I'm not going to give it to you every day just because, you know, there's an obligation. I am not going to let congressional hostage takers take me along with the country hostage, nor the gist, I can tell you that. Now, another thing that I haven't talked about, though I have been monitoring and in fact actually getting entertainment out of, is succession. Why? Well, because everyone's talking about it, and that is the same as the debt ceiling. And I do, by the way, write a bit about it today in Pesca Profundities, but also like the debt ceiling, we pretty much knew that it would happen the way it happened, and then it did. Unlike the debt ceiling, it was exciting, or at least rewarding to take the journey. Now, part of the reason it was exciting to take the journey, unlike the debt ceiling, is that when master storytellers craft characters, they wind up with more interesting figures than uh, real-life Kevin McCarthy. But the aspect of succession that I thought you might be interested in is its mantra, its driving credo. Here is my favorite succession wrap-up podcast, The Watch, talking about it. I'm not saying that she's going to have a change of heart. Yeah, but what's the say? Is it like broken people break people? No, that's not it. That's not the phrase. This is the phrase. You know, there's a saying that hurt people hurt people. That, of course, was Judge Rhonda Willis from the Relative Justice TV show, sure to be nominated for as many Emmys as Succession this year. But that is the phrase. Alison Herman writing in Variety on the Succession finale. The show could buck cliche when it wanted to, yet built itself around a pair of truisms. First, history repeats itself. Second, hurt people hurt people. James Ponawazic on the front page of the Times over the weekend. At root, 
The series family themes are talk show simple, hurt people, hurt people. Time magazine last month about succession, hurt people, hurt people. Now, hurt people, hurt people as a phrase is antinoclasis, antinoclasis, the repetition of the same word with a different meaning. First example of this on Wikipedia, I'm not a businessman, I'm a businessman, Jay-Z. In hurt people, hurt people, we have very constricted antanaclasis. There are no words in between the phrases. It's the therapeutic equivalent of buffalo, 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 buffalo. You know that one? A bison from an upstate New York town could intimidate another bison from an upstate New York town. By the way, if you're a fan of buffalo, 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 and I am, on linguist Reddit, which I'm also a fan of, I found the equivalent or a close equivalent in German is Wenn fliegen hinter fliegen 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 hinter her. When flies fly behind flies, then flies follow flies. And there's a Finnish one I can't even give justice to. Anyway, hurt people hurt people. So true. And I suppose if we stayed tuned for another generation of Roy's, we might find out that fail sons fail sons. But overall, Succession is a great TV show. There were great 40 episodes. Uh, I get into some of the nuances in Pesca Profundities, the Substack. I'll plug it again today. But I've been pondering hurt people hurt people. And I've been trying to come up with some other forms of the very tight antanaclasis that could possibly turn into the themes of future prestige TV shows. Here are some I came up with. A show about hot EPA officials. Fine people, fine people, right? A show about anti-vaxxers who themselves are running scams. Wrong people, wrong people. About the guy who invented Twitter bemoaning what it's become. My own people, own people. An aspirational romance. Complete people, complete people. That one is uplifting. Consider it a sorbet. For the last one, I think HBO would pass on this. A show where pointed sticks are distributed to the visually impaired and then directed to a shopping mall. Blind people, blind people. It is not prestige. It is, of course, the highest rated of all those I pitched. On the show today, it's a whole show, a whole interview. No spiel, just a big interview with James Comey, former director of the FBI and, more to the point right now, the author of A Who Done It. In this case, the case of the book Central Park West, it wasn't the Russians, but we do talk about the time that everyone was concerned it might be. My interview with James Comey up next. We're speaking with best-selling author James Comey. His book, A Higher Loyalty, Truth, Lies, and Leadership, was on the New York Times bestseller list. His second book was on the New York Times bestseller list. His third book is a novel. It is called Central Park West. And if you were wondering, is it a crime novel? The subtitle is A Crime Novel. And you may know James Comey as the seventh director of the FBI, which we will get into. Welcome to The Gist. Great to be with you, Mike. So tell me, when you're professionally investigating crimes in your free time, would you seek out crime fiction? No. I, fa I think the last crime fiction I read before I got fired was Scott Turow's Presumed Innocent in 1987, just before I became <laughs> a federal prosecutor. Because I couldn't read about crime or espionage or terrorism because it was filling the days. Yeah. And when you came across, okay, maybe you couldn't read about it, but especially uh, during the 
aughts, it was impossible to avoid uh, media about terrorism. And of course, it's very hard to avoid media about the mafia. Would you watch it and say, oh, they're getting it all wrong? Yeah, what I, if I would watch it, I would say not that they're getting it all wrong, but often little things that were wrong. And I would point them out to my family and they would never want to watch it with me again. Yes. So this book strikes me as well plotted, good characters, but I wouldn't be surprised if a major impetus was, look, I don't know if I could write a better, more taut crime drama. I'm pretty sure I could write convincing dialogue for a courtroom, but no one is going to nail federal procedure more than I have in this book. Yes, I, I hope that's true. I, I've had friends, I have a friend who's a criminal procedure professor at a major law school. I had him read it and my kids read it because the greatest pain for me would be one of my former colleagues saying, dude, you got, look, the hearsay rules are different than you've got here. So yes, I was trying to get it as real a fiction as possible. Yeah, I think you're right in terms of uh, they always hire consultants, former FBI people, for instance, to add the authenticity. Often what will happen is there are some picky details that they nail, but then the trial procedure is just, I object, I don't like that question, sustained, because you didn't like that question, and it's crazy in terms of actual rules of trial. That's right. Or people start jury addresses from their seat. Mm -hmm. That's another one. They're sitting down, beginning to speak to the judge or the jury. And those of us who know court procedure are like, God, that never happens. Right. So I'm trying to be real and also fun and entertaining. And well, I think folks will find it that way. I hope they do. But it's also interesting because, yes, you're right. A major trope of fiction is he doesn't play by the rules. He's a lone wolf. He does things his own way. And you wanted to have heroes who did things the proper way. And your point is they could still be seen as heroic because they are. Yeah, it was, I found this work addictive and I was trying to do it the right way because the subject matter is so interesting and there's real tension, there's real drama in doing real cases. And so I've tried to bring that to the page. And look, it's not just about, I mean, I was doing mob cases 30 years ago. I was thinking about the current day, which I know pretty well, because my daughter was the chief of the violent and organized crime unit in SDNY, Southern District of New York in Manhattan, while I was writing this. And her work is pretty darn exciting. Uh, is Does she come to you for advice ever, or do you erect walls so that that doesn't happen? Well, she, she, won't, she won't talk to me about her cases. She was the lead in the case against Glenn Maxwell and Jeffrey Epstein. And my wife was forever asking her, so what's the deal with Prince Andrew? And she would always groan and say, you know, I'm not going to talk about my work. So she, I don't need to give her a lot of advice. I've given her some about general courtroom stuff, but she doesn't talk cases with me. Yeah. Um, how often? So these you wanted to hew to facts and rules and not be too wild in terms of procedure. But when was the last time a mob informant was killed during a trial? Well, I don't know for sure. Um, it's happened. Probably, uh, I know of cases in the late 90s, early 2000s, I guess. But so, yeah, it happens. Yeah. And I find I've talked to many people who uh, actually I don't think I've ever talked to a former FBI director. I may have. But I've talked to many former federal prosecutors and they go on to prosecute cases other than mob cases or mafia cases. But something always brings them back to that. There's something uh, it's not just that the public is riveted by it. I have some theories. But do you find for all the cases you prosecute, you're dining out and telling more stories or thinking more about or the public maybe 
is more enraptured by your association or a federal prosecutor's association with mob cases than other kinds of cases? I think the public is definitely more interested because it's such a part of the cultural fabric of America. I mean, thanks to things like The Godfather, one and two extraordinary movies. I And so I don't think that's true for me. I, I always enjoyed public corruption cases and also would tell a lot of stories about terrorism cases. But mm -hmm. there's no doubt that people want to talk about mob cases, which is one of the reasons I wanted that to be the center of my first book, because I think it's a topic people are interested in. Yeah, I also think that mob cases, usually uh, the the antagonists, the mobsters, are very colorful figures. So it, terrorists might be opaque. Uh, politicians, sometimes they're colorful, sometimes they're just corrupt. But mob figures usually represent pretty good literary characters. That's one of my theories. Do you agree with that? I agree. Yeah. These are easy villains in a way because they deserve to be, right? It, uh, because they are awful people who dominate. I mean, you know, New York City, that everything in New York was subject to a mafia tax. And most people don't realize their power came from their hold over unions, the ability to exploit unions in all different trades to wring money from people trying to start a business or run a business in New York City. Yeah. I don't know. Mm. I sometimes am frustrated by, we can't go back in time, 20 years, 30 years, but when the Fulton Street fish market was entirely mob dominated or all of the carding industry, there were, there were estimates that th in certain industries, this increased consumer prices fivefold and it's not felt now. So sometimes successful prosecutions or successful law enforcement actions happen and then they just get kind of priced into life and people stop crediting the uh, the success of the law enforcement, I wonder if that sometimes frustrates you. Yes. And you see it especially in violent crime, right? I spent a lot of time in Richmond, Virginia as a federal prosecutor trying to reduce the homicide rate. And the, the, the blessing and the challenge of it is if you bring the homicide rate down, or at least you contribute to it, that people are like, well, everything's fine now and we should make changes to reduce the size of the police force because everything's fine in part that's possible because no one speaks for the people who aren't victimized right, right. the people who aren't being killed obviously aren't being killed or raped or assaulted and so you can't you bake in your successes and then we tend to swing a pendulum back so we have more crime and then we have to deal with it again yeah so I noticed there aren't a lot of national politics in the new novel, Central Park West. There is the U.S. attorney for the Southern Dis District of New York. He's going to be uh, overseeing the uh, jurisdiction where the main case is tried. He's portrayed as, well, not in the most flattering light, let's say. I think that's fair. It's all fiction, <laughs> though, Mike. It's all fiction. Yes, I understand. I understand. <laughs> but my point, I remember I, I interviewed Jake T Tapper, and he wrote a couple of novels about politics and nasty politics and fights about being traitorous to the United States, but he said it in the 1950s. And he would say, every day I go to work and I talk about the present. And this was a nice respite to talk about at least something that happened 50, 60 years ago. Was I know you wrote this book after you got out of government, but was it a respite to write about something that didn't have anything to do with national politics? Yes. And I, I was intentional about that. I, I wanted to write a story that would take a reader inside institutions that I've known in a cool way without the distraction 
of identifying someone as a Republican, someone as a Democrat, and having people over-index on those things. I just want to tell a story about good guys and bad guys and a gray area in places I've known without that distraction. Well, even not, even independent of political parties, because uh, tell me if I'm wrong, I think that you were always able to navigate partisanship, but in the last, I mean, just literally, uh, you weren't able, you were fired uh, by Donald Trump. So it became, and it has become harder, even for someone who's trying to do what you're trying to do, which is in a nonpartisan way, pursue justice. Uh, so to phrase my question succinctly, has it become harder for someone who really wants to act in a nonpartisan way with justice as their guiding light? Is it harder for them to do that in politics today? Yes, especially hard for an organization like the FBI, because one of the unanticipated consequences of the FBI spending the last 50 years trying, because the American people wanted this, to be independent is that it has no friends in high places. And as the political world becomes more polarized, its its lack of friends becomes more and more obvious. It's so much more easily a punching bag. There are a lot of dark sides to Hoover's tenure for 50 years, but one of the things he ensured is that the FBI, people would always have the FBI's back because he was friends with the president. He was friends with senators on both sides of the aisle. He drank with them, he hung out with them. And those days are long gone. So in a polarized environment, it's not only it's not only more obvious the FBI has more has no friends, it's it's really difficult for the organization. Okay, so in terms of isolation of the FBI in this polarized environment, does the Durham report, which I know you didn't participate in, but I'm sure you've read or at least read about, does the actual substance of the report, and we can maybe talk about the interpretation, does that go towards um, remedying some of, and addressing some of the polarization, or do you think it makes it worse? What's your assessment of the report? There's nothing new in the report about the FBI. So my assessment is it was an enormous waste of taxpayer money and time, but in a polarized environment, right? The special counsel is like a guy who stands in the corner behind the three-point line calling for the ball, and you don't even guard him because there's nothing there. And he misses every shot. He airballs them all. And now the game's over, and one side proclaims he made all his shots. He's the MVP. Yeah. So it's not that the report adds anything different. It just becomes a vehicle for people to say stuff that isn't true. Mm, a vessel. This is what I was thinking of, though, and maybe it addressing polarization. Substantively, Durham uh, issued, there were intimations during earlier reports, like the Horowitz report, that he was perhaps going to find that the investigation into Donald Trump was improperly predicated. But he did not find that. He had issues, and I hope to talk about them in a second, with uh, how robust the investigation was. But the but if you really read the report, I guess you have, he doesn't say that it was wrong for you and the government to begin its investigation into Trump, right? Correct. So what it, what's important about that versus the interpretation is to weigh it against what was uh, promised in the report. And just the very fact that he does not fault uh, as a matter of law the very investigation that has come to be the heart of the critique of the FBI. I do think that's important. I don't know if anyone will ever realize that, but I think it's important. So let me just say that. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Look, yeah. I've said this many times. We should have been fired for dereliction of duty if we didn't open an investigation this summer of 
2016 based on the information that we had. Would have been right. crazy not to. And he quotes, and he quotes officials saying that, uh, former colleagues of yours, but he also faults the nature of the investigation that was open. What do you have to say about that? That's what I meant by it's nothing new. I, I, as I understand it, I don't see any difference in the critique. The FBI made all kinds of mistakes in the conduct of that investigation, as, as the FBI always does in significant complex cases. But all of that was explored at tremendous length by people who are more qualified to do it. The pros at the inspector general's office. I'm going to miss my dates, but five years ago, four years ago. Yeah, the Horowitz report. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, he criticizes confirmation bias within the FBI. Is that a fair critique? I don't, I don't see it as a fair critique in this particular case, but I think in general, it's a huge challenge in all human affairs, especially in investigations, because you, you, there's so much information, your brain has a tendency to compartmentalize and to narrow you. And so, yes, it's a concern in all investigations, as it is in all human affairs. I don't get the particular critique here. But you you have talked about confirmation bias. As you just said to me, this is a human um, foible, so we have to guard against it. But are you saying that there was no confirmation bias in the pursuit of uh, the allegations about Trump and the Russians? I don't perceive it that way. The FBI, again, I got fired in May. Right. We had reached no conclusion by the time I got fired. I didn't know the answer as to whether any members of Donald Trump's inner circle had worked with the Russians. Again, people forget this. We were not investigating Donald Trump. During my tenure, we did not investigate Donald Trump. And the other thing we didn't do was tell anyone about the investigation. We started in the summer of 2016. This is the thing about America today. There's all kinds of people on the left side of the political spectrum who are angry at us for not saying something, for conducting the investigation in the classified way that we conducted it. So. It's hard for me to buy the verdict of confirmation bias when we kept it secret and we didn't reach a conclusion, at least during my tenure. And then the conclusion was handed off, obviously, to Robert Mueller, who reached all kinds of conclusions in a very long and thorough report. Much of the Durham report talks about the Steele dossier and the FISA warrants uh, subsequent to opening the investigation. So I'll flat out ask you, has the Steele dossier been discredited? I can't answer that because I don't know what the FBI, what one of the things we were trying to do while I was still director is figure out, is this, is any of this right? Is some of it right? Is all of it right? What do we make of it? That was part of the mission of the investigative team. And I don't know what conclusion they reached. Well, the Durham report is an FBI report and it goes further than anything else in laying out an official, uh, as an official FBI document that there were major portions of it that were not true. And I think that there were no portions of it that were unique to the Steele dossier. So in other words, other than allegations that could be found in contemporaneously reported news sources, no unique parts that have been confirmed or corroborated. Do you know otherwise? Do you th is there any evidence to the contrary? I don't. And I'm prepared to accept that. As I said, my view of that material was entirely agnostic and yeah, and so I don't know exactly what the FBI did to check it out. The one thing I would just check you on, Mike, I don't think the FBI would consider the special counsel's report an FBI report. Okay, um, but it is an official government report because people within the Comey FBI have always said, we just don't know, the, not always said, but 
said after the Steele dossier came in for what I think was warranted criticism. We don't know what the facts are. You have said that. We don't know what the facts of the dossier are. Insofar as we can affirm uh, facts, uh, because it's very important to do so, facts are important, um, can we make a conclusion that the that the Steele dossier, by all the facts that have been compiled, including what including the research Durham did, can we now say that on a factual basis the Steele dossier should be at least considered very very skeptically? I well, I think it was treated very skeptically all along. So I'm just not I, I'm not fencing with you. I I can accept the judgment that all of it is not. It doesn't check out or some of it checks out. I just don't know the answer to that. It wasn't that important to my life as FBI director. And when I encountered it, my view was, I don't know. We should check this out and try and replicate it for ourselves. But it was a necessary part, not the only part, but it was necessary to get FISA warrants authorized. Without it, FISA warrants weren't authorized. And then when included, FISA warrants were, right? Yeah, I don't. I may be remembering incorrectly, but I don't think that's right. I think it was the FISA warrant sought on one particular investigative subject. Yeah, it that was, was Carter Page, right? It, it was a significant part of that. Our general counsel's view was it wasn't necessary to obtain show probable cause, but I, I don't know the answer to that. So yes, it was a significant part of that one application. Okay. Um, and do you think that the that application has been overblown, the, the investigation into Carter Page? It is very serious to investigate a U.S. subject, is it not? Sure. But it was mm -hmm. one slice of an investigation of one subject in a sweeping investigation that was much broader than that person. But look, that doesn't mean it's not important and that, that the inaccuracies in the FBI filings were a real problem. And so I don't want to downplay that, but there's there's been a significant effort to, at least in my experience, to make it more significant a part of the investigation than it was. Okay. But that doesn't mean it's not important. Right. Now, at the risk of that, uh, I want to follow up on questions that Anderson Cooper and Brett Baer asked you in 2018. Uh, Bear put it to you this way. When did you learn that the DNC and Hillary Clinton campaign had funded Christopher Steele's work? So I'll restate that question that he asked you. I don't, I don't, I don't know, Mike. I haven't thought about that in a very long time. I don't know. Okay. I, yeah, I don't know. So that question was based on when, but your answer then was, I still don't know that for a fact. Do you know it for a fact now? Ha, has it, insofar as facts are maybe not totally always possible to nail down, but do you credit at least what Durham found about the Clinton campaign funding Steele's work? I... I don't know. I'm prepared to accept it. I don't. I honestly have not thought about it. It's been five years since I was asked that question. So, yeah, fine. Do you think it's important or do you think it's overblown to know that about Steele and the dossier? I don't think it's important. And we'll be back with a little more of James Comey to get into some of the nitty gritty of Crossfire Hurricane after this. We're back with James Comey, author of Central Park West. So during the last years of the Trump administration, when William Barr was the attorney general, he used the word spying to describe the surveillance that the FBI had done. And you took uh, issue 
with his use of that word. You say the FBI doesn't spy to begin with. That's what you said then. Can you talk to me because the spying word, the idea of spying is still used. Can you explain what the FBI was doing in surveilling a U.S. citizen? You know, Donald Trump says wiretapping, but let's put that aside. Why should it not be seen as spying? Because I think the term spying in the, in the mind of most Americans is different than court-authorized electronic surveillance or searches. I think when the F, so I just think that most people colloquially spying is a different thing, understood differently than that. And if you explain to most people, the FBI only collects electronic information like that with the approval of a judge, their reaction would be, oh, okay, that doesn't seem like spying to me. Yeah. But if you're a person, I think, who, well, you're attuned enough to politics, not to say totally crazy things, but you're also a truth teller in regards, say, waterboarding. When asked, you said, yes, I do believe it was torture. So you don't default to euphemism. Do you think the FBI doesn't spy, it investigates? Is that something of a euphemism when you consider the plain definition of spying and what the Bureau was doing in regards to Carter Page? Well, to the extent I understand your question, I don't think it's defaulting to euphemism. I, again, I think spying is understood as a pejorative mm -hmm. and isn't a fair description of the tools and the legal authorities under which the FBI conducts electronic surveillance. I just think it's intended to mislead when people use that term. Are FISA warrants hard to obtain? Yes. Okay. So when you add the difficulty of obtaining a FISA warrant, the proper procedures to the kind of investigation that might include surveillance, surveilling uh, a U.S. citizen, that's one of the reasons why you would say it's not spying, it's procedure-based and the procedures are legitimate and robust. Not just, yeah, and procedures based, and the procedures include the involvement of an Article Three judge, so someone appointed, confirmed by the Senate who operates in a separate branch of the government. And in addition to that, there's all kinds of other procedures that make it hard, as it should be, hard to get a FISA warrant. So that's why it doesn't, when someone calls that spying, my reaction is, come on, you're, you're trying to pull something here. Tell the American people exactly what this is. Do you think that in, in how you pursued your job, do you think you helped depoliticize the FBI or wittingly, well, certainly not wittingly, but even unwittingly made the politicization worse? I don't know about politicization. I know the decisions I made hurt the FBI. And yeah, and I wish I could have found an alternative. It's just the question is, what would the hurt have been if I'd made different decisions? But so there's no doubt that I had to make decisions that damaged the institution's reputation and some parts of the political spectrum, maybe both sides of the political spectrum. But so that's how I would think about it. Well, if you make the case that your decision ha caused less da damage than the opposite decision or no decision, did it really hurt the FBI? I mean, are you really saying you hurt the FBI or made the decision that hurt the FBI the least it could be hurt? I guess it's semantics. I mean, I, know, I knew when I made certain decisions like... Uh, telling Congress we were reopening the Clinton email investigation, that it was going to be very bad for the FBI. I judged, actually I still think so in hindsight, that it was less bad than the alternative. And so I'm not, I'm not trying to be cute, but I, I do think that that, I think those things made the FBI more of a political target and hurt it. But I, I agree with you. I think it less so than if we'd done different things. What can be done to repair the reputation of the FBI? 
time will heal the, heal the reputation of the FBI because we will, the pendulum of our polarization will swing and with it will come less attention on the FBI. Time will fade it and the work will continue. And so the FBI will be okay in the long run. What about acknowledgement and accountability? Oh, I think that's important. And transparency. Right. Telling the telling people, here's why we've done what we've done. Showing the work and the reasoning behind the work as much as possible. That's important. What what mistakes do you think the FBI has to be accountable for? Oh, my gosh. How much time do we have? Well, I don't want to go back to Hoover. I want to talk about the Comey regime. Yeah, plenty. I mean, we should be as transparent as possible. Hold ourselves as the leader of the FBI if you make a decision that has a significant impact on the institution or the public interest, you ought to participate in transparency, being held accountable. And so I think, although I don't always agree with their conclusions, I respect the institution of the inspector general a lot. And so it's really important that they do their work and show people what they think. So in uh, an imperfect world, so imperfect as we have Russia trying to influence the U.S. elections. I mean, I think almost everyone could agree that part of it is certainly true. So as imperfect as we have the politicization, the polarization that we have now, but in a more perfect world, how would people of good faith or the vast majority of people have looked at the assessments, the official assessments, Durham, Horowitz, other uh, Senate intel, House intel committees, looking back at this period, how would they have processed it? Um, what should the narrative be about the tough choices that were made? And if you can, what were the legitimate missteps that you would acknowledge and you think the public should know? Oh, I, I'm, I mean, I'm not prepared sitting here to tick off all the mistakes, but read the, if you're interested in knowing where the FBI made mistakes in connection with both those two matters of significant interest, the Clinton investigation and the Russia investigation, read the inspector general's reports. He ticks off errors in the way in which <clears throat> the nature of the FBI's source relationship was described with sources that were important to the to the FISA in relation to the one subject. So lots of things like that. But I, you know, I'm not prepared to give you a list because I haven't read them in a long time. Right. So you, what you're saying is the Horowitz report nails it. Yeah, I think by and large, it nails it. It's long, comprehensive, painful to read, but really important. And you're saying what? The Durham report is nothing new? I, I guess I'm missing something. I don't see anything new with respect to the FBI. The CIA had a church committee. They assessed and in, to some extent rehabilitated the CIA. There was accountability involved. Does the FBI need something like that? No, I don't think so. It has, in a very aggressive and competent inspector general, the the vehicle through which its work is looked at in hindsight and critiqued in a very strong, detailed way. CIA, at least as far as I know, at the time of the church uh, committee had no such thing. Okay, so play this out. What if the FBI's reputation doesn't get rehabilitated? Uh, what happens? Its its effectiveness is diminished in a couple of different ways. Its ability to attract talented people to work in the institution and its ability to be trusted and believed when agents knock on a doorway and ask people to cooperate when they stand up in court and testify. Those things are are hurt by um, being perceived as a political actor. Mm -hmm. And do you think that the status of the FBI in the public's eyes, is it 
tied up with particular politicians, particular political movements, or is it more a function of just uh, something much bigger, like the media environment we're in, or just basic faith in government and institutions? I don't know. I think it's probably some of the last. I, I don't think that the public, again, to the extent I can even say what the public thinks about something, but in general, the American people's view of the FBI, at least I, in my estimation, is more influenced by its sense of the place, its perception, a lot through fiction media of the organization and not associated with particular people, particular leaders. James Comey is the author newly of Central Park West. It is a crime novel. He has two previous bestsellers and now he tries his hand at fiction. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Mike. The Gist was produced by Corey Wara. The senior producer of The Gist is Joel Patterson. Michelle Pesca is CLO of Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperu, Jeeperu, Dupru, and thanks for listening.